Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to this hastily re-recorded uh, episode of the Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan, joined by Michael Normanson from The Square Ball. And remotely this time, uh, via Zoom, Phil Hay is is with us. We'll, we'll get to Phil in just a second. Um, you can subscribe to The Athletic as well and read all the mad, mad deadline day fallout, the blogs, Phil's reaction to transfers or lack thereof on The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to, uh, to sign up, pan a month, six months. Uh, twice a week we are now, by the way, Mondays and Fridays, and sometimes we have to record the Friday show twice around the deadlines. This one is going to be the first show we ever record that spans two days yeah. as well. We're, we're, be, is, we're recording this is, at uh, 10 to midnight. And just about to stray into Friday, mind you, we were asking for it, weren't we? When we sat down to record this earlier on today, we said there's a lot of jeopardy involved in this. And I think you said to me, Dan, it's a good thing that, you know, it's part of the fun. And um, no, it wasn't, but never mind. <laughs> Um, so yeah, what we've done is we've we've got the show, the, the usual two-thirds of the show that follows this first part will be the stuff that we recorded earlier on. Now we're going to react um, immediately to the passing of the transfer deadline. Normally on this show, we we um, reflect on the press conference, which you get as well later on in the show, which is great. So it's a two-for, you get two-for-one here. First of all, Phil, have you ever experienced a day like it? I mean, we've been bemoaning the transfer window for ages saying it's gone on forever. We can't wait for it to end. And what an ending it was to it, and not necessarily in a good way. It's not so unlike 2019. It's not so unlike 2014, which I think still probably exceed this slightly. Um, 2019, because of the way it all fell apart for Dan James right at the death, and 2014, because you'll probably never see a more inept form of communication than, than that tweet with half an hour to go, don't go to bed too late. There is actually a piece on The Athletic that explains that day in in depth, um, and it's a great read. I mean, it, it gets into um, Jack Whitehall's flat in Notting Hill. It gets into a mobile phone that Chilino lost on the plane uh, flying from Miami to England or England to Miami. I forget which way now. But this has been this has been chaos today. And uh, the, the thing was that when we recorded this earlier, we were under the impression, and Leeds were certainly making the assumption. Um, that Bamba Dieng was about to get on the plane from France to England. Um, they'd agreed a deal with Marseille for around about 10 million euros. They'd agreed a four-year contract with Dieng. They believed that he was ready to come and, and was happy to sign. And it was as we were finishing up recording that um, we started reading tweets in France saying that, that Nice had got involved and and actually were quite serious about getting something done. Um it seemed implausible if he was actually in the air, but what transpired very quickly was that he wasn't in the air. He was still at the private um, airport terminal in France where Leeds had, had arranged for a jet to fly him into England. And it was very clear soon enough too that actually he was leaning towards Nice and that was the option he was uh, he was going to go for. The kicker here is that in the last few years, he has either failed a medical at Nice or had complications with a medical at Nice, which means that the deal hasn't been able to go through, the transfer hasn't been able to cross the line. Seemingly, it, there's still 
um, circumstances in which that could happen. And I've read journalists saying that it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that Nice and Marseille will be able to resurrect this and will find a way to get it done. Um, but he's had quite a day, really. Um, and it has to be said, I mean, a lot of clubs, you know, look at the character of players when they say, when they analyse players, they look at talent, look at ability, they look at character. I think he said a little bit about Dieng's that he seemed to have, promised Leeds that he was coming here and, and then um, about turned. But in fairness to him, the approaches were coming so late in the day that perhaps he felt he owed nothing to anybody. And talk to me about Cody Gakpo as well, which feels like a lifetime ago. It's only 24 hours ago. We were all tucking ourselves up in our gym jams, going to bed and expecting to wake up to news that he was flying in. He didn't get on the plane either. Victor Orta flew back alone. I just wonder what that was like probably for, for Victor Orta flying back first from the Netherlands and then potentially from the south of France. I was saying in the article that I've written for tomorrow that this is kind of played out through the medium of private jets. Um, and even before you get into Cody Gakpo, there was the approach yesterday morning, short-lived for Huang He Chan at, at Wolves, um, somebody who I think Marsh was very keen on, um, but who I think actually in Leeds' mind, in the, in the mind of the recruitment department at Ellen Road, wasn't somebody that they particularly wanted to go for ahead of Gakpo. I think they looked at Gakpo and saw far more in the way of potential. Um, saw him as a, as a better prospect, someone whose value was likely to, to rise and develop um, in a, a far more impressive and, and steeper way than Huang's. But that was going on yesterday. Um, Will said no to that, made it clear that they weren't going to listen to offers. And, and essentially it was, it was abandoned there and then. And from that point, everything turned towards Gakpo. Uh, so on Wednesday night, Gakpo was in. Uh, on Wednesday night, Otto was in Eindhoven to watch Gakpo play, watch Gakpo score a hat trick with impeccable timing, and to try and thrash out discussions about and thrash out a deal to get him to Ellen Road before the deadline. And there was a point at which Leeds were under the impression that Southampton had effectively matched PSV's valuation or were, were very close to it. So Leeds, from what I'm told, went in above. Um, Southampton's valuation in the hope of you know killing the competition, getting the deal done, striking you know quick um, agreement with PSV that meant that Gakpo could be on the plane the following morning. And and from what I'm told as well, they were confident and, and optimistic that it was their offer that Gakpo wanted to accept. You know, it was that that if he was coming to the Premier League, it was Ellen Road that he wanted to to move to. Um, but. PSV dug their heels and decided that they weren't going to accept either offer. Also made it clear that you know there was no grounds for negotiation on that. They were not going to have a change of heart. They were going to keep him, which they have. So Walter was on the plane home on his own um, around about eight o'clock on Thursday morning of deadline day. Um, landed and and very very quickly uh, was in the process of, of striking a deal um, for Dieng over at Marseille. So it has been very very back and forward and. You know, it's safe to say that as of lunchtime today, Leeds did think that Dieng would be coming, that Dieng would be signing, that that would be done. And in the end, as the window's gone past, they, they've ended up with um, Wilfred Nonto, the, the young striker from FC Zurich, who was linked earlier in the window, but who it looked for a long time like Leeds might leave alone until a window, um, you know, the subsequent window, possibly January or, or next summer. But he's the one, we're waiting for confirmation on this, um, but he's the one that they seem to have managed to get in order um, just before the deadline and it looks like he will sign. To quote a Phil Hay tweet from the 19th of August, would you believe, uh, Marsh says he, Nonto wouldn't be Premier League ready. Is exactly what he said. 
Uh, yeah, um, and did say at that point it wasn't necessarily one that would happen in this window. I think Leeds had looked at it and looked at him as, again, a prospect and somebody with potential whose contract was up next summer, um, but somebody who they didn't necessarily need to rush into doing in this window. I think they would have happily waited until January or waited until next summer, certainly if they'd got Dieng um, or, or Gakpo. I think that would have would have been the case. So it does fill a gap to an extent um, it means that with James going to Fulham which he has um, and which was always kind of on the on the cards it has been one out and one in as opposed to finishing the window a man down which I think would have been inexcusable really and, and would have asked big questions about about the plan and, and the strategy for this stage of the window when the, you know there is a far greater risk in the last week of and and the final few days, final few hours of getting stitched up, you know, in, in the way that Leeds have been with the Dieng deal. Um, but the question I think we'll also have to ask about Nonto is: is he is he actually to any extent Premier League ready? Can he do a job if he has to? Can he learn quickly on the job? Because they do need resources and they do need a player. They did need a player in in that position, um, and. You know, I think there will be a transitional period for him, definitely. And and Marsh made it sound as if the first step for him would be to go into the under-21s. But it feels to me as if the signing that was coming in at this point was, was going to be needed by the first-team squad. You say it would have been inexcusable for them to finish the window a man down. Feels like we came very, very close to it. And maybe this has been pushed through, rushed through to avoid that particular appearance. Is that fair to say, Phil? Is it's been a week, hasn't it, in which none of the rhetoric that's come out of Leeds has really matched up to to what's happened. We had the tweet from Radrazani earlier on today talking about welcoming Dieng, and I totally accept that they thought that that, that was happening, but that obviously blew up in his face to an extent because it, you know, it, um, the, the offer came in from Nice and, and Dieng turned towards that as well. We, we had the, the remarks earlier in the week um, about, you know, the, the strength and the depth of the, the forward line, which have, has been badly affected by the injury to Rodrigo. He's going to be out for three to four weeks, which is not a huge length of time, but it is a period of games where he's not going to be available. And obviously the kind of lingering doubt about when Bamford is going to get himself up to 100%. And I think as well, you know, the comments about the, the recruitment team being prepared to... Um, you know, to, to get something done right at the death if needs be and if options came up. It is a, you, you do make yourself a hostage to fortune saying that because, as I said earlier, this is a period of the window where you do run the risk of things going wrong at, at short notice and things going wrong in a way that leave you no time to do anything else. And, I mean, it, it has to be said that with Dieng, when we were recording earlier and we were talking about him a little bit more in depth, the, the three of us all said we're going to need to actually see him in the flesh, I think, to know for sure whether this is a good signing. It, it wasn't difficult at all to find people in France who thought he was a talent, who thought he was a good player, who, who liked his explosive running and, and felt that that he was a danger um, as a striker. But I don't think many of us have a, a vast experience of watching him. So that was one of those that you would judge over time. I feel the same with Nonto, really. He, he is a full Italy international, it has to be said. Um, and, and he is somebody who, who seems to be highly rated. But again, we're going to have to see him with our own eyes, I think, to know, firstly, how suited he is you know, to, to help Leeds this season in the Premier League. Um, and secondly, how good he's going to be longer term. Did you see him recently? Because he's played against Hearts. Did you watch those games? 
I did watch those games. He, he came off the bench, um, and it wasn't it wasn't easy um, in the first leg. It wasn't easy to get a, a big grasp on what he was like, and, and particularly the impact that he made in that game. But I've watched highlights of him. I've watched footage of him on Scout, and you can see that he he knows where to move. He knows where to position himself. He has a, a ton of pace on him. Um, he, I think he has a, a striker's game and, and a striker's brain. It's going to be about the transition from Switzerland to England, and also the transition for somebody who is very young. You know, he's eighteen and and he's pretty raw. He's played a fair amount in Switzerland, but there is, without any doubt, a difference between the caliber of that league and the caliber of the division that he's coming into. Um, and as and as you said at the start, you know, if if you're looking for a judgment on this, the the one we've had from the club came from from Marsh himself, who said that that in his view he had a way to go before he would be ready for this league. Bit of a two-pronged question for you here, Phil. Um, do you think that the thinking has changed on the need for a forward player in this squad towards the end of the window? And the one that follows from that is, um, should they have planned for it better, um, given all the things we know about the the injury record of the forward line? Or perhaps am I just saying that with the aid of hindsight? No, because I think it's something we've been talking about all the way through the summer um, and, and talking about more and more um, since Bamford's had this this fresh injury problem, and also the fact that you could tell that Bamford was being managed through the summer, it just cast that doubt over whether he was going to be there and ready for 38 games this season, or whether it, he was going to be a bit more in and out. And we'll see as we go. And with Rodrigo, you know, the the, the fact that the previous two seasons for him have been mediocre and, and have not been highly impressive. Um, you know, my my thought on you know the 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 club's view of the of the forward line that they've got is that in the mind's eye, to look at them as as the best they could be. Yes, you could have exceptional seasons from Bamford, Rodrigo, Gelhart. They could make a big impact, but I think if you're objective about what's gone on with them, you can make an argument for why that might not happen. Um, at the same time. So yes, I do think the thinking has changed. They, they were clearly in for the Kettler, but the, the narrative around the Kettler seems to be that because he was so so special in their eyes and so good, they would have pushed the boat out and they would have found some way to finance that to make sure that he came in. But I don't think before Rodrigo was injured on Tuesday night that the appetite to bring in another forward was really there. I think the club felt confident that they were they were okay in that position. In terms of planning for, for it, they obviously had options. They obviously knew they were going to have a dabble at Huang. They obviously knew they were going to go for a Gakpo, neither of whom in the end were, were available or not at the price that Leeds were able to talk about. And then they did have Dieng as well. You know, that was that was one that had been worked on. And I have to say, in fairness to Leeds, they, they never sign anybody without doing background on them. You know, everybody is scouted, everybody is analysed. So they must have looked at Dieng and they must have had an eye on him without him having been mentioned through the window, been written about or mentioned to be at any stage as somebody that they were they were focused on. They will have done analysis and, and, and gathered insight to work out what type of player he, he was. So they will say that, you know, there were options there for them to move when they needed to move. They've done Nonto, who was was clearly there as well. But I think it's been a scramble because at the start of this week, they thought they were OK. Post-Everton, they realised that they weren't particularly if it, it was problematic with them, Rodrigo's shoulder. Um, and it has been it has been incredibly frantic today. Are we absolutely certain that Nonto is done? 
Um, at this stage, no, I can't say that. The, the Premier League have tweeted to say that there are deal sheets in, um, four deal sheets in total from Premier League clubs. Um, that's what you do essentially when you go past the deadline. If you get a deal sheet in saying that there's an agreement between you and the players' club and you both agreed that um, he will sign and it will it will cross the line, um, then the Premier League give you a little bit of extra time in order to get your ducks in a row um, and to get it sorted. So we haven't had final confirmation of that. Um, it is on the cards. We are expecting it to happen, but as ever, we'll see. Do you think it's been a poor strategy in terms of the recruitment of the forward, Phil? Um, fans will say, critics will say, you could have seen an injury coming a mile off just based on previous evidence and knowing that Bamford is being treated with kid gloves to get him back into the side. Is is that a fair criticism to say this is this is poor planning? Well, this is the thing you see. I think a lot of what they've done this in this window has been good. I think the players who needed to be sold or who wanted to be sold were sold in good time. Um, I don't think they maxed out on the price for Rafinha or Phillips, but I don't think they they vastly undervalued them either. And, they, and in the end, pulled in about £100 million for them, which is a, a good amount of cash. And it was evident that they knew exactly what they were going to do with that money. They knew who they were going to go after. Um, and, they, and they were urgent about it. They were kind of strategically urgent. You know, they, they didn't hang around. They did get those those first five done as quickly as they could. But since then, and I talked on the podcast last week about the, the transfer window almost being cut into two halves. You know, the one where it was very active, the, the, the other half where very little has gone on. And since then, I think they have strayed more and more to the mindset of thinking, not necessarily Marsh, because if you listen to Marsh's comments, I think he's made it quite clear that actually a striker on board would suit him um, and, and that was something he wanted. But I think the club have strayed more and more into the mindset of thinking that they are okay up front and, and that it would be fine, you know, that, that Rodrigo would come good, that Bamford would be back in vogue, that they get plenty from from Gelhart. I think what we all felt and, and what we've said several times is that you could see ways in which that forward line would easily be weakened um, and easily be compromised. And, you know, it was the case on on Tuesday that having seen Angus Kinnear say, you know, be, be very expressive in saying that, that he thought they had a high-quality forward line that, that would do them fine. By the end of the game, you had Rodrigo off with a dislocated shoulder. You had Bamford, who didn't come on until the last 15 minutes because you, you got the sense that Marsh didn't want to risk him so early in the game and, and went for Gilhart instead. And it did seem to be a, a big red arrow pointing to the fact that more cover up there was needed. And and you you only have to look at the the move for Gapo, um, the the approach for Huang, the attempt to get Diang, and and in the end, you know the the what looks like successful approach for Nonto to tell you that actually when it came to it, the club wanted a striker too. Do you think if the club could go back twenty four forty eight hours, they get rid of Dan James in this window, or do you think that's essentially been an accident because we thought we were getting someone better? Well, I I felt that by this morning, when when James wasn't at training and wasn't at Leeds, um, and there was, you know, there'd been the serious attempt to get Gakpo in, and Dieng developed into what looked like a, a signing and waiting. It felt to me that even had everything fallen through, it would have been incredibly difficult, stroke impossible, to have clawed James back from the loan at Fulham, given that they had essentially transmitted to him the fact that they thought he was expendable. He didn't want to go. You know, he, he made it quite clear to Leeds when the story started to develop about him that he, he, he would stay and fight for his place if he could. But it it was it seemed to me that Leeds were essentially saying it, we, we could get somebody better 
or we could get somebody else to add to this squad. And if we do, then you're the one who's going to pay for it. You're the one who's going to move. You're the one who's going to go out. You're going to be the, the make weight to make sure that, that that happens. And I can imagine that James will be quite aggrieved by the way this has worked out. It's, it's virtually a year to the day since he signed for Manchester United and, and Leeds committed £25 million to that deal. Um, and, you know, I think in his mind, he thought that he was here this season and he thought that, that he would be making an impact. I think he was backing himself to get into the team. I think his position was compromised by Sinistera, you know, making a good start and sparkling in, in his early matches. And, and I, I do think in Sinistera, I see a better player than I do in James. But I sympathise with James. And, and given that he was in the Amazon documentary, you know, so kind of candidly, um, talking and, and showing what went on on that night when he didn't quite sign in 2019 and given some of what was said by Leeds about that and how angry they were about it I don't think it would have been a good look had they you know had they abandoned the move to Fulham at the death tonight even if it meant they were a man down I think that had gone so far that the decent thing to do irrespective of whether a striker was coming in was to let him go because they made it clear that they were happy for him to go what do we know about that deal in terms of the is there a loan fee a future fee how much of the wages are covered all that sort of stuff I still need to ask about the details um, and to find out exactly what's going on there. There's been no talk about an obligation um, of Fulham taking him on permanently at the end of it, but it might well be that there's an option in there. Um, It seems to me that this feels like the end of his time at Leeds. It's hard to envisage how he goes away for a season on loan um, and then comes back and and suddenly fits back into the squad. He's, He's older than the age that you would go... Go, you know, except a move like that, if you were looking to develop or looking to to progress, it does feel it does feel a bit as if Leeds have moved on, you know, and, and have moved on from him. Uh, are concentrating on other players. I almost feel like this unit that's in behind the centre forward or was on Tuesday um, of, of Sinistera, Aronson, and Harrison is is probably what Marsh sees as the the preferred unit that he'd like to play there, and how much realistically had, had Gakpo come in, had Dien come in, how much of a game. James was going to get is a, is a moot point. I think Nonto potentially would have challenged his place less and I think there will be people out there who do wonder whether this has strengthened Leeds or whether actually the trade-off of James for Nonto has weakened them. Um, but you have to say that with Nonto being quite a bit younger than James, the potential there has, has got to be higher, I think. Um, but with, with James, I, I just felt that it had gone so far that there was really no way in which Leeds could... I guess pretend him that he was particularly wanted or, or you know, had a role to play because the, the past few days had given the opposite message. And just like clockwork, perfect timing, Phil. We have just had the announcement at 10 past midnight uh, on Thursday into Friday morning that Willifred Nonto is confirmed five-year deal signing for Leeds. Yes. Um, so gone through. Um, fee is being talked about has been between four and five million euros, so around about four million pounds. So that is done. Um, I would imagine far too late for him to be involved at Brentford on Saturday, depending on what Marsh wants to do with him. But a lot to ask Marsh about actually after the game at the weekend. Um, none too obviously, and the the deals that, that didn't happen, um, but also about James to get his view on that, and I think to, to get his view on where he saw James in the pecking order. You know how willing he was for him to go how, how whether or not he, he particularly wanted him to stay but they have got a forward and, and they needed a forward and we'll see how good in time Nonto is but I think it goes without saying that it's better to have one in and, and one out than just one out Now just to close this section out then Phil um, we've seen your report with uh, David Onstein that Leeds went after Ben Brereton-Diaz there was an inquiry there as well did we go back in for Huang as well? 
Huang, as far as I was aware, was off the table from yesterday. Um, and we had contact with Wills earlier today who said they hadn't had anything more from Leeds um, and, and were not in the market for selling him anyway. That was the message that they get, gave to Leeds on Wednesday, which was why Leeds, from that point onwards, focused so heavily on Gakpo and, and Otto went to, to Holland. Um, Brereton Diaz had a bit of attention today from a few clubs, but nobody particularly seems to like the valuation that, that Blackburn um, have placed on him and the money they're asking for him, given that his contract is, is running down and, and not a million miles away from expiry. Um, so it, I think there has been some casting of the net, without a doubt, and it's been a, a pretty fraught end to the window. I'll, I'll be, what I'm interested to know is how happy Leeds are with how it's gone today and whether or not they, they see this themselves as um, a success or whether actually there's disappointment internally about the fact that it isn't Gakpo and it isn't Dieng and, and that you know more experienced and proven players haven't come through the door. The only, I, I guess the only thing to say with that is that with Nonto, you are talking about somebody who's played for the Italy national team and, and somebody who clearly does have talent. I, just at this stage, it's very difficult to know how much of an impact he's going to make quickly. So can you score deadline day out of 10 for us and the window as a whole? Crikey. Um, I think deadline day probably goes down as a three or a four, given that they have come out of it with a signing, but um, that they, the, the player they had lined up didn't get off the tarmac um, in France. Not not ideal at all. The window, I would give a six or a seven, I think. Um, I don't know if people will think that's um, an overestimation or a, or an underestimation, but I thought that they, they handled the process of selling Phillips and Rafinha well, um, particularly Rafinha, given that he, he wanted to leave and it had to be Barcelona and Barcelona were an incredibly difficult club to deal with. And I do think that the first five signings they did, the first five first team signings that they did, were good ones, were sensible um, and you know were, were well organised, were well planned and were done with pretty much the, the minimum of fuss. But I do think that it was a big risk to um, let, let a, another striker lie for as long as they, as they did. Um, I think we all feared that what what ultimately transpired today was coming, you know, a, a kind of scramble uh, and a pretty desperate um, last day trying to get somebody through the door. That part of it, without a doubt, could definitely have been handled better. And as ever, the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating, isn't it? The season will go ahead now um, without any more signings until January. Um, there's a limited number of games before uh, the, the, we break for the World Cup and we'll see where Leeds are at the start of November. Well, thanks for stopping by then, Phil. Um, it's getting very late now. I think it's uh, bedtime for all of us. So we will wrap up part one of the Phil Hay show there. You can now hear the two thirds of the show that we recorded earlier on and laugh at the... Uh, a more innocent time. A more, definitely a more innocent time, uh, particularly maybe our mistakes, things we could have said differently, thoughts you had on Dan James and his exit from uh, from Leeds United, Phil. Yes, although he did go in the end. Um, I can't remember if we've repeated this in another section, but I was talking about when he signed, for, or tried, almost signed for Leeds first time round, and I worked on the Evening Post. And that started with us thinking that it was fine and dandy at two o'clock and it was fine and dandy at five o'clock and it was probably all right at six and seven and eight. And then it was starting to feel anxious at nine. And then at 10 o'clock, we basically had to strip out about 90% of the copy that had been written because the paper was due to go to print just after 11 o'clock and it was no longer clear whether or not that was going to happen. So not so much of that drama today, um, but it has felt like everything's been right on the edge. I do think that did make the cut in the final two thirds. So everybody will get to hear that anecdote twice, which is great. Lucky then. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, 
You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We'll get round to the press conference um, a little bit later on, Phil. First, let's reflect on what happened at Ellen Road on Tuesday night, the one-all draw. What did you make of it? I had a lot of choice replies when I said it had been a very engaging game. And on reflection, I suspect you probably had to be in the ground for it to be an engaging game. I have a feeling if you were watching that on the television your eyes would have been drawn to fairly distinct lack of quality from one team in particular it has to be said I did think Leeds played so much more of the football and actually had the the better moments through the the 90 minutes but it was it was absolutely raging inside Ellen Road all game I was sat with my Everton colleague who said ah I love this (laughs) I love this it's just it's just so angry you know everybody seems so annoyed about absolutely everything and I think the, I think the main frustration was with the way Everton were playing and with a lot of what was going on and the time-wasting that started at such an early point. I mean, I, I thought the the addition of three minutes of injury time at the end of the game was just unbelievably ludicrous, not to mention the fact that we didn't even get to the end of those three minutes. He blew up with about 15 seconds to go. It was really weird. And even though he kept kind of tapping his watch down England towards Pickford and so on, it didn't actually seem to be registering in any way. I, I thought, yeah, I, I didn't think it was particularly well handled. And I came away thinking I would prefer to watch Leeds over 38 games, I think, this season than, than Everton. It seemed to me that the, the night was always going to be dictated by whoever scored first. And because Everton did, that played into their hands. It allowed them to make the game their own. And it was shaping up to be quite a bad night at halftime. Goal from Anthony Gordon, the injury to Rodrigo, you know, general frustration all around. And I, I did think it was a compliment to the squad that they were able to were able to play, they were able to cope with a bit of pressure on the night, got the equaliser, should have won the game, I think, had enough chances to win the game. The save from Pickford, um, from Gelhart was particularly good, I thought. So in, in encouraging aspects, without without it being, you know, like a stellar contest and a, you know, absolutely champagne football, because it was not that, inside the ground... I thought it was a really good game to watch. I thought it was very, very easy game to get into. Felt to me like they did to us a little bit of what we did to Chelsea. Like, so they imposed, I guess, their style and their ethos, not just on the game, but on the occasion itself. Because we spoke, didn't we? we, we we'll, we'll get into it in a second about the tetchiness of the crowd. Uh, and I think we did that to Chelsea as well. We, we dragged them into our arena. We made them play our game. And I think Everton did that to us a little bit on Tuesday. Everton, don't, they didn't really seem to have a game of their own, though, I didn't think. Their game seemed to just be... Maybe they're the type of game, though, not necessarily mm. like the, the the shape of the match. As in to drag the game down to a certain level. Yeah, they, they made it scrappy and tetchy and um, got the crowds back up, which is, I think, what they set out to do. That's the point I'm kind of trying to make, whereas it didn't, which didn't give us a proper chance to kind of get behind everyone. You know, that real raucous energy that drove Leeds forward against Chelsea. They didn't let that be manifest on Tuesday. I know. I felt like we were proactive in the game though against Chelsea, whereas it felt like Everton they looked set out from the start, like they were happy for a point. Is the what, what I would take from it. Whereas Chelsea, we certainly looked like we were aiming to win that game. And 
it never really changed either. When we got the equaliser, you didn't sense Everton were particularly looking to push. Admittedly, they didn't need to because they were, they did break and cause us problems on several occasions, which is which was a slightly worrying aspect that we can have basically all of the ball and all of the actual build-up play, and then from absolutely nowhere, Everton are up the end, other end, and with the ball in the net, or Melier is pulling off a great save. So th- there were certain aspects of it that I can sort of see what they were trying to do, but I just felt like they were. They looked like they were in a relegation battle, desperate for a point, and were you know in the opening games of the season. I agree with that, and uh, it's it seems like an odd way to think that coming away from there with a point would be decent when you've got the Merseyside derby coming up this weekend, and when you haven't got a a win on the board. It's dangerous to say this at this stage, but they did look more like the sort of side who were heading for a pretty difficult scrap um, than Leeds, and. And I thought there was more football in Leeds' performance than there was in in Everton's without it being in any way wildly impressive, but not discouraging either. And as I say, like I hate saying that, you know, last season this would have happened or last season that would have happened, but Leeds were not good last season at coping with those situations. You know, one goal became two, two goals became three. The, as the season went on, it was like the slightest application of pressure could make everything fall to bits, whereas they did hold their nerve on um on Tuesday they did they did keep it together they did deserve that equalizer um which was a, a lovely goal from Sinistera and to my mind he starts again against Brentford on Saturday and he does look like uh, he could be a really good signing for the money they've they paid for him i can't help comparing you know 20 million or thereabouts to 80 odd million for anthony over at manchester united and wondering what the 60 million pound difference is manchester united well, Manchester United and also the time of the window when you're doing it and when you need a player and you have to pay whatever. Something tells me Ajax might be absolutely cock-a-hoop about that fee. Do you think the Tetchy atmosphere helped or hindered Leeds then? Because we had a little back and forth on WhatsApp about this, didn't we? We couldn't quite put our finger on what it was. Yeah, it was a little bit impatient, I thought. But I, I, I suspect that stemmed more than anything from the way the game had developed. The fact that it was messy, the fact that it was really stop-start, the fact that the referee didn't seem to be doing a great deal about time-wasting. I mean, Pickford is almost the ideal person to give time-wasting duties to because he just does not, he's totally indifferent to what's being said round about him. He just does not care. He's in his own world. He'll do that all night and it, and it you know, it, it's no problem for him how much he gets barracked from the crowd behind him. I think those sort of games generate that and then of course Everton score first with basically their first effort on goal. Urenti doesn't cut that ball out. It's all a bit of a mess and it does just, you know, the, the frustration does just creep in slightly. But again, I thought the crowd were there um, when they needed to be and I thought it was comfortably a deserved point and it should probably have been a win on the night. What did you make of uh, Urenta's performance and also of Marsh's comments today where I, I think he was trying his best to stop short of saying Robin Cock and Liam Cooper will be first you, choice. You might you might be right. I, I say what I always say. I, I think Cooper makes a positive difference to this team. I do. I totally agree with Marsh when he says that Robin Cox had a really good start to the season and I reckon all of us have been saying that there's a really good player in Robin Koch, provided he can stay fit and provided he can play. I honestly thought that was a transfer that would work if fitness didn't hinder him. But I think you get good communication with Cooper. I think it's not going to last forever with Cooper, 100%, but um, I think you get good communication with him. I think you get common sense. Yes, you get mistakes, but you know, give or take, you get mistakes from a lot of people, even, even at this level. I think if you were asking me to pick the team, I'd probably be going, with everybody fit, I think I would be going... Robin Cock on the right side, Liam Cooper on the left. And Robin Cock now playing at centre-back rather than being forced into midfield. Yeah, well, this I think we touched on this on the Monday show, saying 
about Stroik at left back. I don't think Stroik has done a bad job there. It would be very harsh, I think, to say that it's been incompetent or it hasn't worked as such. I think he, I think he's done his best to apply himself. But as was always kind of the case with the the, the makeshift options at central defensive midfield when Calvin Phillips wasn't fit the past four seasons, even though he can work for a short period of time, you generally feel like there's going to come a point where it no longer does because why would it over a long period of time? It's not his position. It's not not what he, not what he's supposed to be there doing. Um, I think this team probably does change quite a lot if you have a competent out and out left back in it. And yeah, you know, Robin Koch, when when he first signed Leeds said, you know, we think he can play as a defensive midfielder if he has to. But if he has to, is surely the point. You know, he, he is a centre back. He's a, a Germany international. You play him there and keep him fit, and I think you've you've got a big asset on your hands. Is there any chance of a left back in this window then, Phil? Or are we uh, in the next seven are, hours? Or am I am I dreaming? It's been pretty unequivocally ruled out that one um, from a few weeks back. Marsh has kind of said happy with strike there. He was football coming back. He was talking strike up today, wasn't he? He saying was, he'd adapted was, really well. Yeah, he th- and and he said better than we thought he might have done. Everybody is fit now, bar Rodrigo. Obviously not Stuart Dallas, um, but Stuart Dallas sits on the the very sort of long term injury list. Um, Rodrigo's got a few weeks out, but everybody else is training. Marsh was saying today that, that Cooper is probably the only player who's in contention to start or truly ready to start, even though he said on Tuesday that, that Bamford might be if needs be. But yeah, um, if you know if Philpo comes back, he will play. I think he, he will, will slot in there soon enough and then we'll see. Um, but that is that is the left-back option as Leeds see it. Over on the other side, what do you make of Christensen? He, um, he seemed to grow into that game. We were sort of mulling over on our show about whether it's kind of, not maybe his breakout performance, but he's getting closer to it. His confidence seems to be growing. I thought he was better defensively at Brighton as well. I did think there was improvement in his positioning and improvement in the number of challenges, tackles that, that he was able to win. It's It's been quite slow for him. I, I think it was Marsh, was it not, who was saying that the difference that everybody's going to find coming from Austria to uh, the Premier League, and, and I guess coming from Salzburg in Austria more particularly, is that you're not going to have the level of dominance that you might have been used to there. And it, it is more difficult. You don't have as much time in possession, you don't have as many opportunities to do things. Um, so impressing is not as easy as it is in a league where you are the standout club with the most money and by a mile, the strongest squad. So of the four signings so far, we haven't seen a huge amount of Sinistera, but I think what we've seen has been has been really good. Um, Christensen has probably been the slowest to get going in the way that he'd, he would have wanted to. But I think he's definitely a player that you reserve judgment on because I think he could be good. And he's the one that you back to slot straight in. If I'm remembering rightly, the, the classic Phil Hay curse. I, I think I said at the outset, although, do you know, I did hedge my bets in the end by predicting that Aronson would be the best sign in this season, which was um, a bit sly because I basically said on here, you know, Christensen probably, you know, £10 million, probably be um, as good a signing as any. So we will see. And I did enjoy him and Anthony Gordon going head to head the second half, especially because he gave us another brawl on the touchline by the dugouts. And I have to say, Fair play to Gordon because he's a young lad and he did not back down in that at all. Just waiting for one of them to blink, weren't you, and do something mad? But yeah, neither of them did. Just waiting for that. Absolutely. Some, like the blue touch paper. Proper, properly stick the head on and, <laughs> and it, it to go. Um, but there's a there's a definite piece coming, I think, about Jesse Marsh and the touchline because it is good fun down there. One of my big fears um, at the game on uh, on Tuesday was because I championed the stat, the Optus stat that we've discussed in recent weeks of the eight points from five games. We went behind and I thought, oh no. Why have I been talking about that? That's going to be used as a stick to beat me with. As it stands, we've got exactly that, which is funny that it's fallen exactly that way. Nobody seems to be able to work out if this eight points from five is really a thing. 
or not? Is it? A, it's kind of that, but it's not exact science, I suppose. I say it's not um, rocket science to say. I was just going to say, let's just explain what that stat is for anybody who hasn't heard it. It's that Opta worked out that 96% uh, probability of staying up if you get eight points from your first five games. They worked out something like that, yeah. yeah. There, there was a good chance if you took eight points from your first five games that you were not going to get relegated, which, as I say, is not necessarily rocket science. Good start equals half decent season or or good season. But it is a decent start. I think it'll be better again if they get a result down at Brentford. And as well as looking at where Leeds are on the table, which you know still very young and, and doesn't not too, too much you can read into it, as well as looking at that, um, looking at what's going on further down the division, there are some clubs who are already running into difficulties, like Aston Villa, for example. Yeah, I was saying um, over on our show that there's a nice five-point buffer now between us and the bottom side. So you're talking a two-game swing there, which fe- that feels like a nice comfortable thing to keep in place. And we should just do that all season. It's yeah. more comfortable after 36 games. It I, is. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, it seems early to start saying we're five points clear. <laughs> but it's Bottom inter- three. But- it, it is interesting. We're going back to the algorithms and all that. Um, we've talked before about 538.com's um, projections, you know, for the Premier League. And we kind of fell back on them. Just trying to find some some sort of crumb of comfort towards the end of the season about probabilities of staying up and all that. They had us down uh, before the season started as one of the bottom three clubs, I think it was. They had us as, uh, as 18th. We're now moving up towards mid-table. Um, they've got us as two, four, well, yeah, because six, they've taken eight, ten. Eight. They've, they've got us 12th. Which, well, yeah, because they've taken eight yeah. points from the first five games. This is like, um, I always say with the supercomputer, if it's any good, it should be able to call it in July, shouldn't it? It's like that thing in Phoenix Nights where they, they ask Brian Potter, what time's the clairvoyant supposed to turn up? And he says, <laughs> well, if he's any good, he'll know already. <laughs> it doesn't seem to me that you, you say at the start of the season, yeah, I finish 18th and then you get a few results in the board and you go, hmm, probably 12th. <laughs> it's interesting just to chart though that the move just from five games that they've got us swinging so wildly up towards mid-table. I recall at one point towards the end of last season, probably after the Watford win, I think it had us at like 5% chance of relegation mm. and then come the final day, like about 80% chance of relegation. <laughs> in their defence, I will say, I think we probably all had leads at about 5% chance of relegation after that Watford game and hell... <laughs> it turned around turned around quickly but yeah I mean I I said at the outset I really did not have a gut feeling for how this was going to go I thought they would be okay and and I did think the encouraging aspect of pre-season was you could see how they'd been coached and you could see how the specific tactical approach had, had been kind of worked on and, and drilled into them um, but it's a, it's a really really steady start um, it's better than a lot of other clubs in the division I think they'll be pretty happy, but I always felt this was quite an important week for them, just to just to turn, I guess, initial impetus into proper impetus. If they were to win at Brentford on Sunday, eleven points from six games, that'd be really, really healthy, healthy return. And just returning to the transfer talk, actually, one of the things I was going to mention in part one, but never quite got round to, was just the context of the season and the window kind of feeding into that. It's really, really hard to get your get all your transfers right. I mean, we have spoken on our show about Howard Wilkinson in the past famously saying like, you know, if 40% of your transfers work out, it's it's about an average or a good hit rate. Leeds are obviously aiming a lot higher than that. You know, we, we saw in Angus Kinnear's programme notes, the less provocative aspect of it was him saying there's an opportunity cost when it comes to investing in, in players, i.e. if we get one wrong, we can't really, with the club where it is, afford to burn through 10 or 20 million quid on a mistake. Yeah. So there's truth in that. Do you think the hit rate's been quite good this season so far based on what we've seen? It looks like it because I I don't think Christensen has been terrible. I don't think he's been especially good either. 
But you, you're talking about a, a collection of five games, of which you need far more, I think, to draw definite conclusions about him. But he does need to, he did need to improve from, from the early games. The other four have been, yeah, I think have pretty much hit the right notes so far. This is the thing you see. I don't think it's been a bad window. And I was saying this to the club earlier in the week. It's not a case of people saying you've had a terrible window. Actually, I think most people understand what they've done in the early part and they understand the rationale for the players that they've gone for and, and understand too how they fit into the methodology that, that Marsh is promoting in the way that he wants to play. I just think they've seen the gap for something else up front and have started to see it. Um, the supporters and us have started to see it as a bit of a blind spot, the fact that nothing was being being done there. Just on the general transfer policy at Leeds and with Dan James on his way out already, how much of that was influenced by Bielsa? Because you've got the impression, we, I know in the same summer we were linked with, for example, Noah Lang and people like that. Do you think no Bielsa means we'd probably get Noah Lang last summer as opposed to Dan James? I think they probably would have done Noah Lang last summer rather than James. But you should never forget that although Bielsa was very, very keen on James, I mean, massively keen to the point where, you know, when, when they signed him, they didn't even really need to ask him if he wanted him. And they certainly didn't need to do any analysis on him because there'd been masses done. But it was Otto who found him initially and it was Otto who was tipped off. Otto, um, Otto was in touch with a data company or a data company were in touch with him and said, look, considering your budget, considering the division you're in, they were in the championship at the time, and considering what feasibly you're able to do in the transfer market, if you want big, big value for money, somebody who could appreciate rapidly, um, both in terms of talent and in terms of future value, you should be going after Dan James. You know, he is the, he, on the basis of metrics and stats and everything else, he is a player who you really, really should be interested in. So it would be totally wrong to say that Otto wasn't as interested in James as Bielsa was, or that Otto wasn't interested in him. You know, it wasn't purely a, a Bielsa signing. But I think, I, I do wonder whether at that stage of the window last year, they would really have done James um, had it not been for the fact that Bielsa was coaching and Bielsa really wanted him. And obviously the first time we were in for James, it was for, what was it going to be £5 million upon promotion? I think it was going to be more than that. It was going to be more like seven or eight um, with an initial loan fee, I think, of about one and a half million, something like that. So it would have been considerably cheaper, yeah. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And to the press conference then, Phil, you came from Thorpe Arch, Jesse not talking about transfers, as we mentioned, although he did actually talk generally about the, the sort of relationships that, that surround the transfers and his relationship with Victor Orta, Angus Kinnear and so on and so forth, and the trust for Victor that's implicit. Um, and we actually got a little bit of detail on the plans. Because I did wonder the other week, you know, they said before, Victor said before when he came in here when you were off, about they have two or three, you know, players for each position. And, and Jesse actually spoke about options A, B and C based around different transfer structures, wage structures, and that sort of thing. So we did get a little bit of uh, a little bit of colour 
He doesn't seem unhappy, Marsh. I, I, I do think that. that he's had a, a sort of clever and reserved way of making it clear that, yes, he did want something else up front. And as I say, I think questions will need to be asked to him about, um, asked of him about Dan James. You know, what, where did James fit in? What did he think of him? How happy was he f- for him to go? Is he, is he going to be missed? But you can tell from the way he speaks that he is very appreciative of, of the deals that have been done. He feels like they're the right deals, the deals that, that they needed. And there's clearly a, a good relationship, working relationship there between him and Otto, him and Kinnear. Um, I don't think there's any any concern on that front at all. And I, I, I suppose the bigger picture is that this time last year, they were under pressure with results. They'd only played three games um, by the end of the window, but they hadn't gone well um, or hadn't gone especially well. And already questions were starting to be asked about whether they were they were hitting a bit of a slump. Um, they're on a, a slightly different tra- uh, trajectory this time round, which I think has left a bit more confidence around the club. And to the game into Brentford then. Um, Bamford possibly starting the game. Talked up Joffy in the same uh, in the same answer. Also Sinistera being options. So are we going to see wingers as strikers again? Not Dan James by the looks of it. Yeah. Um, he he said initially Bamford could, you know, could be in a position to start. But when he was asked later on who is actually ready to start, he kind of said, well, Liam Cooper more than anybody else. And, and the rest who who are coming back from injury are probably more more likely to be on the bench. Probably make more sense for them to be on the bench um, to to look after their fitness. I was going to say I hope Sinistera doesn't move up front because I'd like to see him get into a flow now in what looks like his his best position. In saying that, I don't really know what he offers up front, and I don't know if he could be good in that position. So perhaps it it can work, but uh, you know it strikes me that he is a winger and or, or at least a kind of wide forward, and and that would be would be better for him. Which kind of leaves the option of Gilhart or potentially Bamford. But I, again, I think we've seen this over the last couple of weeks. You can almost hear in Marsh's comments the, the reluctance to risk Bamford or to push him too soon. And I did think it was quite telling on Tuesday night. And again, a bit of a kind of red arrow pointing towards the transfer market that when it came to Rodrigo coming off, it wasn't Bamford who went on. You know, there's an hour left, and it did feel as if Marsh was saying, don't "Really, know whether you know him straight back from groin injury, whether or not we can we can push him through that amount of time." And in the end, Bamford got 15 minutes, and it was Gilhart who who came on instead for Rodrigo. So yeah, I, I feel like it might well be Gilhart at the weekend, unless he does decide that he's going to go for Sinistera. But as it stands, it certainly can't be Dan James up front. Is this a good opportunity for Somerville? Do you think as well to be the the gate man to change it off the bench? Well, one of the concerns about James going when it was first spoken about was that, again, a little bit like the situation up front, it might not take much in the way of injuries um, or loss of form to pile a load of pressure on Somerville and for Somerville to become you know, one of the options who had to change games regularly or had to play more than perhaps they, they would have used, wanted to use him. It's not, a little bit like Gilhart, it's not that um, Somerville isn't a very talented kid to look at his record, there's not a lot on there, um, Premier League-wise. You know, it's far from far from proven and, and far from certain what you're going to get from him over a sustained period. So I think they need to bring him on and they need to find him minutes here and there. But the, there was just that doubt about if James goes, do we end up leaning on him too much? But yeah, I think the situation as it is probably gives Somerville more of a sniff of minutes. Referring to Dan James' deal as, uh, as being done is a risky business, by the way, on transfer it, deadline day. Have you, have you it, not learned anything, Phil? It really is. It really is. <laughs> I, must have, I must have rewritten that piece. I was working at the Evening Post at the time and I must have rewritten that piece five or six times, I think, 
on that evening because the press conference was at two o'clock in the afternoon or thereabouts and Bielsa said one of the rare occasions in fact probably the only occasion where Bielsa spoke about a player who hadn't quite signed but you know everybody thought it was done and dusted so got back to the office wrote it up for the next day as if it was all done and this that and the other and his time ticked and time ticked you know you're thinking this'll be all right this'll be all right this'll be all right and then it got eight o'clock nine o'clock and then 10 o'clock with nothing happening and you started to get the calls that were making you think this is going to be a problem not only because the, they might well lose him, but also because the paper's supposed to go to print at 11 o'clock at night. So what, what are we going to do and how are we going to hedge our bets? And I think in the end, we had to pretty much strip all the Dan James copy out with the exception of the back page and just run it online, um, massively rewritten the next day. So yes, that was fun. Perils of being a journalist there on transfer deadline day. To the actual game though, and Brentford, he was very complimentary about Brentford, was Jesse Marsh, wasn't he? And the, uh, the incredible job he said that Thomas Frank had done. Um, very good at set pieces, if not the best in the world. Best in the world. Wow. Yes, he did say that. I don't I don't know where you would go for confirmation or otherwise of that. Ask Johnny Vio. Yes, yeah, the mighty Johnny Vio. Um forever remembered for that goal at Burton. I think somebody said to me when we came out of Brentford uh, in May, they can contract second season syndrome from us now that we've um, we've stayed up. But they've started okay of Brentford. They started pretty well. I think they'll be quite happy. They look like they have probably got enough about them again to be okay this season. I mean, Brentford away has always been a really difficult fixture for Leeds. I think I don't think Griffin Park ever made it particularly easy. But also, I think the way Brentford play is, it's hard to overwhelm them. You know, it's hard to, to give them a good battering and, and to completely outplay them. They're kind of, they're aggressive and they're positive. So they're kind of always in matches and they're, they're always a threat. Um, it's quite difficult to call this, this weekend. I, I felt that of the two games, Everton at home should be the easier of the two. But I suspect Mars would like to come out of this week with Certainly two points, but I imagine four. I mean, stylistically, does it not give Leeds a slightly better opportunity in that Brentford will be expected to be on the front foot and make the running at home? And it perhaps gives Leeds a little bit of space to play in. Yeah, perhaps. Um, I think so. And you'd imagine it's more of a spectacle than the game on Tuesday night. It's also going to be very, very different to the game at Brentford last season. There's going to be none of the same tension involved. There isn't the luxury for Brentford to sit back um, and take whatever comes to them, you know, to, to kind of say to themselves, if we lose this, it doesn't matter. You know, we'll, we'll be done for the season a day's time. It'll be extremely competitive, I think. And it, and it will be it will be difficult. It, like, Brent, um, like Brighton away, Leeds will have to play well to get anything from this. But a game that you can look at, and I said this on our show, it's, it's in that sort of group of teams that you'd hope that there are points there to be won within these, these bank of fixtures, even if it's not this specific one. But, you know, these middle middle order teams if we are to be one of them we need to pick up points from them as well yeah well if, if they win at Brentford they, they've ticked through the first six games at almost two points a game and you know the longer you can keep that going the more progress you make and I think most significantly while you make progress there are bound to be other teams below you who don't um, and you can open up a, a fairly sizable gap that's what I think Leeds will be thinking about more than anything is that when the the, the, the chunky games that you spoke about right at the start of the podcast before the World Cup when you get to the end of that I don't think you need to set specific targets about the points you've got or anything else, but you want to get to the end of that feeling like you're in a good position, the season's in hand, um, and that you've properly found your rhythm. Because I tell you what, if you haven't, you've got a long time to think about it, haven't you? It's a good point. You really do have a long time to think about it, and actually no time to do anything to the squad um, recruitment-wise because the window isn't open. You know, it's, it's almost one of those where if... I mean, it would be absolutely impossible actually to play the World Cup over January because so many players would be away. What what would you do and how would you sign them? And it, it just wouldn't it wouldn't work. But yeah, there will be a lot of stewing going on. You can take players away to warm weather camps. You can 
coach them, you can do this, that and the other, but it is masses and masses of empty space. It's the manager sacking window, isn't it? And, and surely you go early as well. There's going to be a bit of that, I think. Yeah, there, there probably is. Um, if if you're having doubts, then that is probably the point at which you have time to think. Because you've, you've got the distraction of the World Cup to absorb it all. Plus you can then hopefully get a new manager in and take your time about getting the right one. And it gives him time with the players, doesn't it? It's like another little mini pre-season. Can, can Lampard and Gerard do it together on a world, an ITV panel? That's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I, I think Lampard will have more leeway this season because... Everton are clearly not in a great way. You know, there's, there's a lot going on over there. But it does feel as if the pressure is growing on Gerard pretty rapidly. Brentford will be a big challenge, though, said Jesse in the press conference today. I think they will. A big challenge. Yeah. How, no, do, you, how, do, you, how do you beat Brentford, then? What's the, what's the vibe? What do we have to do? I, I think last season was actually quite a good blueprint for it um, down in London on, on the last day. It's take the game to them. Take the game to them. Be tight. Def- like, don't make errors. Don't don't make daft mistakes defensively um, and be good on the ball it sounds very obvious but I think I think you have to be high level against Brentford I think you have to do the basics well I think you have to have imagination but I think more than anything you have to actually take them on you know if, if you try to sit in against them then they will just come at you and okay you might be able to pick them off but they have enough players who can score goals and players who can do damage that I think you, you have to be ready to go toe to toe and hopefully have you, you sent it back for example not jumping over the ball you could try kicking it that'd work Yes, yes. <laughs> easy, easy said from 40 yards away in the press box, but yes, that would have been good. Well, you've been a bit naughty in your question that you asked in the press today about the best centre-back pairing. Try no, and te- tease a little bit of information out of uh, Jesse Marsh. No, I don't think so. I think you've got four. Therefore, what do you think the best pairing is? As I say, my opinion is that the best pairing is probably Cooper on the left, um, Cock on the right. I think longer term, you, you are looking for strike to come through. Um although he had, he had a hard season last season, I felt um, difficult, but I do think he's a really talented player there. But no, there's a decision to be made, isn't there? And you you do have to get that decision right because on the basis that you've got four centre-backs, you almost can't be soft about it. You have to be fairly ruthless in deciding what is my best pairing, what's going to sort us out most and go with it. And to Marsh himself as well, he discussed his style on the touchline and also his relationship with the referees, which we saw a lot of, a lot of the, the watch tapping and so on on Tuesday against, um, against Everton. I was particularly drawn towards his comment about the refs being well. He understands that they're human first and foremost, um, and he's got he's got empathy for them as well because it's going to take time with the churn of refs that we've had. By the way, a lot have retired in the last yes this last summer, and there's a lot of new ones that have come into the game. And I don't know, I just I found it funny. Was the meaning behind this remark that it's going to take time for the new refs to get up to the standard of the Premier League? Yeah, I think so. Salisbury, for example, at, um, away at Brighton, not ex- not massively experienced at a Premier League level, and I did kind of feel like that that showed. To be fair to Marsh, he does always say, you know, they have poor performances, we have poor performances, and he said that after Brighton. He said, you know, I didn't think the referee was great today, but I don't think we were great either, uh, which is usually the best way to to go about it. I think I think Tuesday was probably different. I could understand him being more frustrated on Tuesday, not because the performance was necessarily worse, but because Leeds were the better team and they were definitely being hindered in moments by the fact that there was a lot of time wasting going on and, and there were attempts to, to slow down the play. And the only person you can rely on to, to keep tabs on that is the referee. You know, As Bielsa used to say, there are rules preventing this sort of stuff. There are ways of stopping teams doing it if you're, if you're, um, if you're prepared to. Oh, and we should also say that there was, uh, as predicted, uh, failing to control their players um, and or staff in the uh, whichever minute missive 
after Barnsley. Um, needless to say, there'll be some money going into the FA's pot from both clubs. Uh, I think pays for the Christmas party, doesn't it? It's easy one? money, you know. I always look at. I know. <laughs> I know teams are meant to behave, and I know you know there have to be disciplinary rules. But I remember writing about this back in yeah, about twenty years ago. Now, at the end of the season, there used to be fines, and I, I haven't looked at this for ages. So I don't know if this still happens, but there used to be fines levelled against various clubs for excessive number of yellow cards or red cards through the season essentially if your disciplinary record was poor you would get hit for cash massive amounts of money I mean I'm not talking millions but you know like six figures quite easily when you totted it all up and I did used to sit there and think what does this what does this money go to like what what's this used for that seems like nice easy brass to just pull in by saying disciplinary record it's on you Christmas party you get the hot buffet instead of the cold buffet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just talking about Marsh's demeanour returning to that for a second I really liked um, the display of it, it seems to me like emotional intelligence do you agree where he's talking about discussing recruitment with the squad and saying he's actually pretty open with them and he doesn't like to have secrets and he likes people to feel secure in what they're doing and give them trust and responsibility things like that communication isn't it which has been the underlying message of the entire thing since he came in the fact that he thinks the more you speak to people the more you engage with people the more you get an arm around them and and I suppose at points as well, the more you're willing to take them on when they need, you know, need harsh words or need some home truths, the, the better for him and, and the better for the club. I always think that's a pretty good move to be open about recruitment. I think there are times where players have to be big enough to accept that squads do turn over, squads do change, and that nobody's ever guaranteed a place. Positions always come under threat. But there are times when players will see transfers coming in that, Either, or transfers going out which are either hard to explain or look like a direct threat in a position where the players there don't deserve it you know for example if you've got two or three very good strikers all of whom contribute goals and, and some contributing a, a really healthy number and you sign another forward you're probably going to have the question in the dressing room of why is this guy here you know why have you decided to do that whereas you know in, in other situations like for example at left back you know if a left back arrived tomorrow you I think Stroke would say, well, yeah, I get that. You know, I understand why, why we're doing that um, until Furpo is back. And even even when Furpo's back, but, you know, the positions that you can see need filled. So it can't be a bad thing to to be willing to chat to the players and give them a heads up for them to know what's coming, for them to understand your thinking. And I guess as well for them to know their place in, in the pecking order. And that was what I started to feel about Dan James as this week went on. In his head, where would he have seen himself in the pecking order? And, and really, did he know? Uh, right, well, we'll reflect on it on the uh, on the Monday show and see how we got on against Brentford. We'll return next week. Enjoy the game at the weekends. Remember, no predictions. No predictions on the show anymore. We'll speak to you next week. The Phil Hay Show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.